we all took a shower. Bill and I did some reading and some looking out the window, doing earth observations, photographs, and things. All in all, we had a good day. For decades, rumors have circulated about a strike in space. The story goes that in 1973, the three astronauts on the Skylab 4 mission took an unplanned day off to protest ground control's management style, and the job action resulted in improved working conditions. It's a great story, but according to Skylab 4 crew member Ed Gibson, that's not exactly what happened. Reporter Megan Day says that the real story is still a testament to the potential of strikes, or even just the threat of strikes, to shift the balance of power in the workplace. She wrote about it in Jacobin last month and brings us her report today. And on this week's Labor History in Two... The year was 1969. That was the day hospital workers in Charleston, South Carolina, won union recognition. I'm Chris Garlock. And that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. vehicle in NASA's Skylab program was moved to the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center in August 1973. The move was made at an early date so that this Saturn rocket and its spacecraft could serve as a potential rescue vehicle for the second manned Skylab crew. For decades, rumors have circulated about a strike in space. The story goes that in 1973, the three astronauts on the Skylab 4 mission took an unplanned day off to protest ground control's management style, and the job action resulted in improved working conditions. It's a great story. According to Skylab 4 crew member Ed Gibson, that's not exactly what happened. But his telling of events, even though it differs from the tidy and entertaining space strike narrative, is still a tale of overwork, micromanagement, and perceived non-compliance bringing management to the table. And Gibson's account still confirms that even a whiff of collective action can shift the balance of power in workers' favor. Earlier this year, the BBC broadcast an interview with Gibson, the last surviving Skylab 4 crew member, conducted by Witness History producer and presenter Lucy Burns. We've only had one reporter other than you talk to us in the past 47 years, Gibson told Burns. He set out to correct the record. Gibson maintains that the crew didn't mean to go on strike. But what did happen had a similar effect in terms of giving the astronauts leverage and intervening in a bad extraterrestrial workplace dynamic. Ed Gibson, Gerald Carr, and William Pogue left Earth for NASA's Skylab space station in November 1973. The pressure was on from the beginning. Theirs was to be the final flight before the station was decommissioned, and NASA had plenty of work in store for the crew. 
The previous Skylab crew had also been remarkably efficient, setting the bar for performance high. The trouble started almost immediately when Pogue got nauseous during the launch. The crew hoped that Pogue's nausea was temporary. If not, it would pose a major obstacle to completing the work ahead and decided not to tell ground control about it just yet. But ground control was listening to their conversations and read the riot act to us about not telling them immediately, Gibson recalls. Management and workers thus got off on the wrong foot and tensions only mounted from there. NASA had tasked the crew with carrying out a high volume of experiments studying the Earth, the Sun, their own bodies, and miscellany such as how spiders make webs in space. Experiments submitted by 25 high school students were continued on this mission. Astronaut Gibson explained one experiment proposed by Kathy Jackson of Houston, Texas. This particular experiment was devised to measure eye-hand coordination before flight, during flight, and post-flight. Hey! Another 45 seconds. Can't beat that. Well, Kathy, hope you learned something. It's been fun. Pogue was still not feeling well, and the workload soon proved too heavy to bear. The men had a busy work schedule aboard Skylab and accomplished much more than planned. They spent more than three times the scheduled hours working on materials and space manufacturing experiments. Net result, Gibson told the BBC, we fell behind what Mission Control desired. So they decided they were going to help us out by giving us detailed instructions every morning. We got our instructions over a teleprinter. One morning, we had about 60 feet of teleprinter message to cut up and divide and understand before we even got to work. What we're looking at here are the uh, two ends on which I have injected three cc's of water each, the one on the left with a red dye in it and the one on the right clear, although it does have some bubbles in it. First, I'll move them together. The instructions were overwhelming, accounting for every second of the day, and they didn't make completing tasks any easier. The crew began making mistakes, causing frustration all around. To make matters worse, the media was reporting on it in real time. A news report from 1973 headlined, Hectic Pace Upsets Skylab Astronaut, observed that Pogue had made several errors. It quoted Pogue saying to the scientists on the ground that with work schedules so tight, quote, someone is getting the short end of the stick and I don't want to be held to blame for it. When we're pressed bodily from one point of the spacecraft to another with no time for even mental preparation, let alone getting the experiment ready, Pogue reportedly told ground control, there's no way we can do a professional job. Pogue added colorfully, I don't like being put in an incredible position where I'm taking somebody's expensive equipment and thrashing about wildly with it and trying to act like a one-armed paper hanger. Speaking to the BBC, Gibson explained the crew's experience being micromanaged in terms that will sound familiar to plenty of workers confined to Earth. I don't know if any of you have ever had to do something under conditions of micromanagement, he said. It's bad enough for an hour, but try 24 hours a day. We're just not constructive that way. 
we're not getting things done the way we should because we couldn't use our own judgment. If you missed something, recalled Gerald Carr before his death, if you made a mistake and had to go back and do it again, or if you were slow in doing something, you'd end up racing the clock and making more mistakes, screwing up more on an experiment, and in general just digging a deeper hole for yourself. Lacking time even to shave, the Skylab 4 crew grew beards. They started to get, as Carr recalled, testy. The situation was unsustainable and something had to give. In late December, the crew got permission for a day off from ground control. It was accounted for in their contracts, but the crew asked for it at a particular time when morale was especially low. The astronauts still conducted some simple experiments throughout the day, but for the most part, quote, we took our day off and we did what we wanted to do, Carr said in an interview with an Air Force historian in 2000. We all took a shower. Bill and I did some reading and some looking out the window, doing Earth observations, photographs, and things, Carr remembered. All in all, we had a good day. What does the United States look like from space? This is the island of Hawaii, the Los Angeles area and the coast of California, the Louisiana coast with smoke trails from two burning oil wells, the northeast coast from New Jersey to Massachusetts, and the state of Florida with the Bahama Islands at the lower right. But one of the things we did is we got careless with our radios, said Carr, and we forgot to configure for one of our passes. Every morning, the crew had a 30-minute call with ground control. Already behind on their work before they woke up each day, Gibson said the crew, quote, decided we'd be smart on this thing and just have one person listening to the ground control line and pass on needed information to the other two. Well, that worked real well, Gibson told the BBC. Except in our fatigued condition up there one day, we got our signals crossed and we didn't have anybody listening to the ground. The crew had no communication with the ground for a full orbit of the Earth. Ground control apparently thought it was intentional. On the ground, they interpreted it as a strike, Gibson said, and the word strike went at light speed throughout the control room and out into the news media. The rumor of a strike in space has stuck ever since. The astronauts' radio silence hadn't been on purpose, and they hadn't taken the day off without permission, as some second-hand accounts suggest. But even just the temporary belief that they had gone on strike, and the sudden awareness that they conceivably could, seems to have helped change the dynamic between the Skylab 4 crew and ground control. A few days later, administrators called a crisis meeting. The crew expressed their frustrations with NASA's heavy-handed management style. They asked to be given a list of tasks instead of a down-to-the-minute schedule and to be trusted to use their own judgment in deciding how to complete them. At the end of these talks, Ground Control agreed to try letting them set their own schedules. As a result, the crew's performance improved dramatically. When they returned to Earth, it turned out that their efficiency actually exceeded that of the superstar crew that came before them. In addition to less stressful and more effective work, the Skylab 4 crew also had more time to enjoy themselves in space, including marveling at their miraculous view of the Earth. You really got to know the Earth like the back of your hand, Gibson told the BBC, and you really appreciated it. Gibson believes that NASA learned a major lesson from this series of events. Quote, our mission proved that micromanagement does not work, 
except where a situation like liftoff or re-entry demands it, he told the BBC. The experiments, the work, and the routine of living aboard a space station continued until February 8, 1974. The third Skylab crew had completed man's longest space mission, spending 85 days in space. The Skylab program had answered many questions in achieving all of its mission goals. Man can live in space for extended periods. He can perform useful work on board and make necessary repairs of the space station. The work projects being planned for shuttle missions will be greatly influenced by the results obtained from the three highly successful manned missions in NASA's Skylab program. Fortunately, that hard lesson got passed on for future space flights and crews. And the lessons from Skylab 4 aren't confined to the space sector. The story of the accidental strike in space underscores the extent to which all workers who are overworked and laboring to meet impossible expectations actually have power to turn the tables, a hidden leverage. No operation that relies on human labor can continue without the compliance of those performing the work, which is why the short-lived notion that the Skylab 4 crew had gone on strike appears to have helped precipitate discussions in which the astronauts were able to secure a better arrangement. Strikes work, and strike threats work too, be they intentional or accidental on Earth or in space. Sometimes bosses just need a little reminder that in the words of the old labor anthem, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1969. That was the day hospital workers in Charleston, South Carolina, won union recognition. The 113-day strike reflected all the broader social issues of the day. Led primarily by black women, the strike at the medical college, Charleston County, and several other hospitals intersected civil rights and racial and gender discrimination on the job. Jewel Charmaine Debnam notes that women like local 1199B President Mary Moultrie, Naomi Watts, and others were essential to the strike not only as daily participants on the picket line, but also as leaders of the local movement establishment. For months, strikers marched, walked picket lines, clashed with police, and held vigils demanding their right to organize. They defied injunctions and endured hundreds of arrests, nightly curfews, and confrontations with state National Guard. Governor McNair and the hospital boards had initially refused to concede to the workers' demands for union recognition. They claimed workers paid with public funds could not engage in collective bargaining. But the women were steadfast. 
They pointed to the wage disparities between black and white workers and between male and female workers. They also protested the blatant disrespect and discrimination meted out daily by management. Local longshoremen stood in solidarity with the strikers and threatened a walkout in support if their demands were not met. Coretta Scott King and many other civil rights leaders also played a supportive role. Finally, the union won reinstatement of fired workers, which had touched off the strike. They also won a solid grievance procedure, a minimum wage, and access to a credit union. Victory would be short-lived, however, when the state almost immediately refused to hold up its end of the agreement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Thanks to Jacobin staff writer Megan Day, For her Houston, we have a labor dispute report. Find more great writing at jacobinmag.com. Today's music is multiverse, composed and produced by Sue the Composer. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes... Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time.